I'm Adam Powney, a gay man serving as an army reservist. This Pride, BFBS is celebrating how far our armed forces have come from accepting, to welcoming, to championing their LGBTQ service personnel. This time, I catch up with Wing Commander Mark Abraham's OBE. To say Mark's career has been varied is an understatement. He joined the Air Force in 1990 and spent 10 years flying on Chinooks prior to the ban on LGBTQ service personnel being lifted. In the years since, he has been at the centre of resulting cultural change whilst working in policy at the Ministry of Defence. So my first question, hopefully it's a nice, easy one for you, Mark, and thank you for joining us, is I'm going to let you introduce yourself rather than myself do it, because you know yourself a lot better than I do. So could you introduce yourself and your career so far? Um, so Wing Commander Mark Abrahams, I've uh, been in the Air Force 33 years now, so um, that dates me somewhat, I guess, and ages me. Um, but um, I served, obviously, since uh, 1990, I joined the Air Force. Um, so I served 10 years pre-ban, um, but most of my service um, has obviously been after the ban on uh, was lifted on the 12th of January 2000. Um, I'm a helicopter rear crew, um, so done most of my operational uh, duty and flying on the Chinook helicopter. Um, been to some really nice places around the world and been to some, some pretty awful places as well in all of that. That, but a really wide and varied sort of experience of, of global helicopter operations. Um, basically, anywhere the, the the wars have taken us in the last thirty odd years, and the Chinook Force has taken us, I, I've pretty much been there as well. Latterly, a lot of my desk time has been in MOD, um, doing policy and strategy jobs, um, and I'm currently working in the Department for Business and Trade in in Whitehall as well. To say you've had a varied career is an understatement. Let's let's be honest. Um, were you gay? before you joined the military? I think it's probably one of those things. I mean, if you ask many people of my sort of vintage, they probably knew a long time before they came out. I mean, I didn't come out until I was 30. Um, so, you know, I, whilst I came out to my nearest and dearest, when the legislation changed and it was no longer illegal to be in the military as a gay man, um, I didn't come out publicly in the service. Um, and, uh, I mean, we can talk about the reasons for that. But um, I... I served for 10 years before. It was something I'd always wanted to do um, from leaving school. Um, initially, I was found to be medically unfit, so I couldn't join the Air Force straight from school. So I went and worked in, in uh, the Ministry of Defence as a clerk for a couple of years before then getting over the medical issues and, and joining the Air Force. But it's one of those things that I, I probably knew from a very young age that there was something different, but I couldn't put my finger on it, um, albeit that, that there were clear signs, I think, from, from a relatively early age as well. Um, I was always a bit of a mummy's boy, that sort of thing. Um, I was never really that good at sport at school. Um, my father was um, a county-level sportsman um, at, at both sort of cricket, soccer, and rugby. Um, I was never very good at any of those sports, to be honest with you. Um, and, I, and I wasn't the typical sort of alpha male. Um, so um, I, I think there were some early signs there, but it was only something that um, I, I started to realise as I went through my teenage years and experimented slightly. Um, and I just put that down to experimentation at the time. Um, but because I wanted to join the Air Force um, and it was illegal um, and pursue a career in the Air Force, um, I had to bury any sort of identification like that um, and did effectively for 10 years. So um, and, you know, when I joined the Air Force, um, it was something that I'd wanted to do. 
something that I was incredibly uh, fond of. Um, and once I joined the Air Force and I got established professionally, it actually materialised. It was something that I was actually quite good at. Um, so, you know, I was in a successful career. I was in a job that I loved. Um, I was being paid to travel around the world and, and see great things. Um, and in a job that I was really, really enjoying. Um, and therefore, clearly, that it, it sort of applied some pressure in terms of me um, not being my true self, if you like, and hiding who I really was. Because at the time, if I'd identified as a gay man, I would have lost everything. There's so many parallels in that, in that short snippet of your story. I was always the artsy one. I was the yeah. gay one in my family. I was a mummy's boy. He didn't, I tried to play sport to please my dad. It didn't quite work. Um, so I can relate to a lot of those those stories what was your support network like because I was actually very fortunate that mine was a solid foundation what was yours like at that time really interesting to be honest with you Adam because I, I grew up in a, a a stereotypical heteronormative family I, I guess in so much as my father as I just alluded to you know a sporting Billy, if you like, played county level sports uh, when he was a teenager um, and continued um, all through his life actually to be engaged in sports at, at different levels. Um, he was in the building industry um, initially uh, as a sort of site foreman for a well-known um, building and construction company and then set up his own business because he, he, he basically was an apprentice as a carpenter and joiner, set up his own business and then ran that for another 50 years until he retired. Um, so, you know, stereotypical alpha male, if you like, in that respect, in, you know, it, it, it was, it was out socialising with all the lads after sport and all that sort of thing. Mum was a housewife. Um, she had jobs until children came along, and then when children came along, she became a housewife. And mum was effectively a professional housewife um, until I started in secondary school. Um, and it was not when I immediately went to secondary school, it was about the second or third year when I was well established in secondary school that she then started working part time. So she went back to work. Um, I mean, mum was always very supportive, but it was not one of those things that I could um, speak to mum about. Um, and I have one other sibling, an older sister, who's three years my older. Um, and we've always really got on well. Um, not like most uh, sort of brothers and sisters who tend to fight during their teenage years. Oddly, we got on really, really well. We've always been very, very close. Um, but again, you know, it wasn't one of those secrets that I would ever speak to, to my sister about um, because I wanted to join the Air Force and therefore I couldn't be who I wanted to be or who I was, effectively. So I had to bury all of those emotions and all of those feelings, irrespective of whether they were, I was aware of them at a, from, a, from a very young age. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure many listening would draw parallels from that story as well. So thank mm. you. You mentioned uh, the band quite early on in, in the conversation. I'd love to to talk about that a bit more because you joined when it was illegal, as you've been explaining. Yep. Um, now you're, you're still serving. It, we're over 20 years on. How have attitudes or policy changes shifted in your time? What's what's the biggest standout moments for that? Um. I think policy start well. Policy and attitude change started to change towards the late 1990s. I mean, you know, the the early 1990s, we were still in the grips of Section 28 and all those sort of horrible, you know, uh, anti-LGBT policies. To be honest with you, um, social attitudes were still very different even in the early 1990s as much as anything else. And you know, the, the policies and the culture that are set by the government affect social um, norms and all those sorts of things. So we were still in. In the grips of all of that. Um, I think, uh, you know, attitudes started to change towards the, 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 
the late 1990s with the Blair government um, because they started to change societal attitudes as much as anything else um, and make it more acceptable societally um, for, for people to be LGBT and be accepted within society. Um, and, and towards the late 1990s, whilst it was still, you still weren't able to serve in the service, um, if you were identified as LGBT, um, you were no longer discharged with dishonour. It was just considered to be incompatible still with service life, um, which was a bit of a compromise, and it was a stepping stone ultimately to the change in legislation, obviously in 2000, after the, the challenge in the European Courts of Human Rights. Were you happy with that compromise in, in the medium term? I think it was a necessary evil, Adam, to be honest with you. It was one of those stepping stones, um, like like all things. Um, and it, it was the same when the legislation changed in 2000. And part of the reason why I didn't come out publicly, although I came out to my nearest and dearest uh, as soon as the legislation had changed, because I felt a great sense of relief in as so much as I was no longer going to lose my job um, for being found out. Um, it was one of those things where my view was you can change the regulations and the policy overnight, but you can't change the culture of an organisation. And I think, you know, the stepping stone um, from being discharged with dishonour to it still being incompatible with service life, but you were still discharged with, from the service, but it was an administrative discharge. So therefore you kept all your financial remuneration, all your pension rights, all your honourable medals and all those sorts of things. Um, they were kept in place. I think that was a, a necessary stepping stone on the route to achieving what was ultimately achieved through the challenge in the European courts in 2000. That's really interesting. I, I, I didn't know that much in depth about that, that period of time. Attitudes now? How how are they? Much much better, Adam. To be honest with you, I mean it 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 it, it has been a journey since twelfth of January two thousand, and I remember um, a bit like one of my counterparts in the Navy listening to the radio and hearing the uh, the verdict, you know, the news announcements on the twelfth of January saying that uh, you know this is this is going to happen, um, and uh, th this was going to be um, the new way and the new world. So it, it is about culture and you're not going to change the culture of an organisation. You know, the military is not known for changing its attitudes and, and, and changing direction on a sixpence. So it's a bit like the whole super, you know, the oil tanker. Um, it takes a mile to turn round. Um, so it has been, you know, a 23-year a, a journey so far and... I think not just the Air Force, but the military is still on that journey and it will, will continue to be on that journey. Um, in a utopian society, we wouldn't need any of the support networks for protected characteristics across the diversity agenda at all um, because as human beings, we'd all get on and it would be lovely, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, when you have humans in the loop, um, they're always going to have their own uh, subconscious biases, those sorts of things, um, and, and therefore... Um, you're always going to have the requirement to have support networks and this is going to be a continuing evolution as far as I'm aware. We'll come to those networks because I have a couple of questions about your role in those as well. Your career so far as an officer and in a position of leadership is quite important for the people under your command and you as a leader to be yourself. What have you witnessed is important when in a leadership role in regards to allowing the people around you to be their whole selves? Um, I think it's incredibly important, um, not only to the individual to be an authentic leader, um, and, and that's 
not just in you know in an operational context it's just in a daily context to be yourself um you know you perform better when you can be yourself at work when you're being your whole self and you don't have to worry about what you're saying that sort of thing so you can be more authentic just as an individual but also as you say as as a leader um in the operational context it allows you to to be a more charismatic i think and authentic leader as well um and you know, I didn't come out until 2005, so five years after the ban. But to me, it became a leadership issue for me um, at work because I was running a team of, of sort of 40 people. We were just about to embark um, on a deployment in Afghanistan at the time. Um, and I sensed that there were rumours swirling around me um, and that people were talking about me behind my back. And I remember my boss saying to me at the time, well, you know, I think you're going to have to going to have to come out because I'd already sort of spoken to him about it to pre-warn him, if you like, um, to say, I think at some stage I'm going to have to do this. Um, but, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm being forced to come out. Um, but, but to me, it became a leadership issue because I wanted to set a, um, a, a, a an honest, transparent sort of working environment um, because we were about to go on operations in, um, in Afghanistan and I wanted all of those people to absolutely trust me 100% because I knew I was going to have to make some really tough decisions potentially whilst we were on operations in Afghanistan um, that I was potentially going to be sending crews off on missions that they may not come back from. But they, they had to know that they had my full trust as much as I trusted them and to set those conditions that's why I decided you know I had to make um, a stand if you like and admit to them or, or tell them that I, that I was gay um, which is exactly what I did um, and frankly it was probably the best thing I ever did um, because everyone to every one of them to a man basically said you know it's not a problem boss you're our boss and and we're grateful that you've said what you've said it doesn't change things you're still our boss um, and actually I had a young female pilot flying with me um, at the time and um, she was incredibly talented um, and she's gone on to greater things in the air force as well um, and when I told her um, she said well you know boss I said I think it does matter you know, you're who you are, you're still the boss, and we're here to support you. Um, but she said, I think you will have earned huge credibility in front of all of the boys for, for saying what you said, because um, ultimately, it's a hugely brave thing that you've just done. Um, and from that, that, that point forward, I've never really had any, I've never really looked back, um, because I've been able to be my full self in the, um, in, in, in the workplace. But I'm really conscious, actually, that I've, I've always been relatively senior in rank um, and in positions of leadership and therefore management. So I, I've, I've been in the privileged position where even if people disagree with me being gay, they've not necessarily been able to challenge me for being gay because I've been the boss. That's a really interesting perspective on that. We always have in our minds when we hear these stories of how people come out in the military, you always hope for the positive reaction. And by the sounds of it, that's that's what you had, which is really refreshing. Did it ever steer the other way or was it majority yes, positive? Yes. And, uh, you know, ironically, uh, it was a, it was another incident, if you like. And it came probably in 2013. Um, 
and it was when I was I was based at a, a, an RAF base in Oxfordshire, um, and I was the deputy base commander at the time of a base of four thousand people, four operational squadrons, so a hugely busy place. Um, but the guard force that was employed um, was a civilian guard force um, with some military. Um, it was like a joint military civilian guard force, and they would do roaming patrols around the base in a in a in a, in a vehicle. Um, and I knew one of the guys who was on guard at the time was one of the young uh, gay guys on, on base, and he was part of the RF network and all that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so I would speak to him on, a, on an ad hoc basis. Now, he was going round the base on his security patrol one evening, and um, he mentioned that one of the civilian guard force, as they drove past the house that myself and my partner were living in, because we'd co-located at this base in, in Oxfordshire. Um, so we were living in a, in, a, in, a, in a big house on base because it was a house that went with a job, um, because I was, you know, the deputy base commander and all that sort of thing. And as they drove past, um, the, uh, the civilian guard basically said to the young airman, um, oh, well, that's where the chief of staff lives with his batty boy. Um, and of course, he was—he—he—he he, he wasn't openly gay, but he didn't hide it, I suppose, from people who um, asked the question of whether he was or not. Um, but I mean, he—he he didn't challenge the person individually at that time. But he did come back to me and say, "Hey, you just need to be aware of something that was said in my presence um, to me." Um, so um, that was—that was one isolated incident, um, which was quite overt, clearly. And it's really hard to foresee how you're going to react in that moment if someone does say something along those lines. But good on good on them for coming to you and raising it. Um, Absolutely, because yep. that's that's what drives the change that's needed. Um, ranks you mentioned airmen there. Yep, the RAF and similar to the Royal Navy, the, the rank structure has evolved for the positive change. It's more inclusive. Um, you've gone from airmen and women to air specialists. Can you yep. say about the importance of that shift and its impact on the service? It, it's a very interesting point, Adam, to be honest with you, because, again, it, 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 this sort of echoes back to the comments I made about the journey that the Air Force has been on. And this is just what, sort of one aspect in terms of neutralising some of the terms, because, you know, a lot of the terms, as, as you highlighted, airmen, um, it, was, it was senior aircrafts, women and things like that when I joined. So there was a very delineation. You know, there was a strong delineation. The Women's Royal Air Force was completely separate from the, the Royal Air Force when I joined. Um, but clearly it's all one service now, which is great, um, and that women are allowed to serve in all of the branches and trades across the Air Force, irrespective, um, which is another great move. Um, so, that you know, this is all part of that journey and the the... The, the sort of change of the nomenclature in terms of rank to make it more neutral, I think, is a positive move. Um, and it, it allows, again, people to be more comfortable in their own skin, irrespective of how they identify. Because if you are non-binary, um, or if you are gay, um, or LGB or T, um, it can be difficult if you are titled by a gender-specific rank and that can be a challenge if it's something that is more neutral then that's going to make that a lot easier for the individuals involved absolutely and in the military and wider in civilian life i always feel like you are not your label you are not how you are referred to as 
in the military, it's always about the job and how well you can do your job. And I think that's that's the correlation that I draw from it is this is your role. This is your job. If you can do it, it doesn't matter who you are, which is the effectiveness that I, I drew, drew from it. We mentioned yep. networks a couple of times. The RAF LGBT plus network, it used to have the f- word freedom in there, if I'm if I'm correct in thinking. You chaired for many years. Tell me about that experience. So, I mean... As I say, the sort of legislation changed in 2000, but you know the, the, the change in legislation drove policy changes for terms and conditions for people to to make uh, more inclusive policies um, available to the LGBT community. But uh, what I was seeing when I, I was I was based in Bristol at the time, and and whilst the people that were pulling those policies together were well-meaning, they were doing it from a uh, an uninformed position because they weren't necessarily well effectively they were probably male they were heterosexual and they've been in the service a long time um so they were doing it from an uninformed position so my view was that actually we need to engage in that process as a community and try and assist ourselves um in, in making the policies more appropriate um and more applicable to the people that they were they were going to affect so that was one of the drivers, and I, I, the Navy and the Army were doing the same, having the same sort of internal discussions at the time. And I, I sat down with one of my Navy counterparts um, and, and said, "You know, I think we're going to start engaging with the, the DNI uh, staff at the time, um, and we'll end up setting up some sort of forum um, or, or network um, so that um, we can start, if you like, being the smart customer in this. So the policy gurus can write their policy." Um, but at the end of the day, they can consult with us to say, does this sound okay to you? Is it is this going to have a negative impact potentially? Um, or will this be okay? Um, and, and that's effectively was the genesis and the, of, of us having those conversations initially with the policy staffs and then setting up ultimately the forum as it was initially called, the LGBT forum, which then transitioned into being the LGBT network. And we called it freedom at the time because... Um, for, for want of a better word, it, it was the freedom to be who you are in the workplace and, and whatever you are in the workplace. And that's why we called it the LGBT um, Freedom Network. Um, it, it's, it's dropped the freedom nomenclature now because that, again, it's part of the journey that the, uh, the, the network is evolving through under new new leadership. And that's absolutely fine. You know, everything moves. It's part of a long-term journey. So um, it's reflecting um, the the sort of uh, requirements of the time and uh, of, of the community. And the network, from what I see from today, is it's very active. It's it's making incredible positive change in the service and wider with all the other networks in, in the military. What impact does it have for the serving personnel to be part of that network? I, I think from, a, from an LGBT community perspective, it's hugely empowering because it gives them a focus um, where they can talk with like-minded people who come from their own community. Um, it allows them to network amongst those communities and there is a support network there. But more importantly, as I say, in terms of the empowerment side of it, it, allow, it empowers the LGBT individuals to uh, uh, to make change, really, for, for better in the Air Force. And that's what it was all about. It was about empowering, the whole network was about empowering the individ- individuals, educating and informing. 
So, you know, that, that was the sort of three buzzwords, I guess, empowering, educate and inform. Um, empowering the individual to be who they are and, and perform to the best of, the be best of their ability in the workplace to the benefit of the Air Force, clearly, um, both in terms of operations and, and routine day-to-day -day business. Um, but also informing and educating the wider Air Force about the LGBT community. And, and that was particularly important way back in the sort of dim and distant past, Adam, to be honest with you, because there were so many myths and misconceptions about um, the, the, the LGBT community, particularly with gay men, because, you know, that the, the services is predominantly, like the other Sioux services, predominantly male, um, you know, from specific backgrounds and all those sorts of things. So um, <laughs> there, there was lots of... Um, initial concerns, uh, you know, having to have shared showering facilities, just those stupid sorts of things where, you know, the, the, the myths and misconceptions about gay men being predatory and paedophiles and all those sorts of horrible misconceptions, that's exactly what the network was all about initially in terms of, you know, informing and educating the wider Air Force about the LGBT community to dispel all those myths and misconceptions. And in the early days of the networks, what was uptake like? So, I mean, initially it was quite a small network, to be honest with you. And as I said, I, it started off as a forum. So we were like a committee more than anything else than a, than a, than a network. So we were working very closely with the diversity staff to help shape policy and terms and conditions for LGBT personnel. And a lot of work in the early days was done on the trans agenda and continues to be done on the trans agenda, I might say, as much as anything else. Um, so I, I guess it, it, it took some time for... I guess, trust to be built between the community and the Air Force. Um, and it wasn't until 2006 when the Air Force um, was finally formally endorsed, if you like, by the Management Committee of the Air Force, the Air Force Board, um, by the Chief of the Air Staff at the time. So again, you know, leadership function, these things have to be led from the top and visible vocal leadership. Um, and, and the Chief at the time was very happy um, and I had many conversations in terms of you know I started the conversations in 2002 with the policy staff so it took until 2006 to actually get the LGBT forum formally endorsed by the Air Force board as a recognized body and at that stage you know I was absolutely content that the Air Force board got the business case for having the network they were all bought into it they were all fully supportive and that then allowed us to be I guess, more forward-leaning in terms of us driving change as a network within the Air Force as much as anything else. Once that happened and we became more visible as a network um, uh, and we, we enrolled in the Stonewall um, Diversity Champions uh, sort of uh, programme, uh, we were in the Workplace Equality Index, uh, so we were getting public recognition for, for all the work we were doing. We started winning a couple of awards, both as a network and some of the individuals on the network, and therefore the profile built, and as a result of that, more people then wanted to start getting involved. How does it feel to get that recognition? It's great. You know, I think the whole reward and recognition is, is a hugely important part of all of this work, to be honest with you, because, you know, some of it can be really, really challenging. Um, 
you, you have to have the patience of a saint sometimes, I think, to actually drive this, this cultural shift because, you know, you can't change it overnight. As I was saying to you, you know, it took me five years, although the, the, the legislation changed in January 2000. I didn't come out until 2005 in the service because I judged that the culture wasn't right. Um, so... And that cultural change is still ongoing and it will continue to evolve because society continues to evolve and we reflect society as a service, we reflect society as a community and all of those factors play into the policies and the culture of an organisation. So it will continue to evolve. Before I talk about Pride, because that's why we're here today speaking together, a question that I've been dwelling over in my mind is, Back from when we started, you were talking about you were aircrew. Now, aircrew to me, correct me if I'm wrong, is a small crew. It's a small team. It's quite intimate. What was it like not being able to be yourself because you're saying didn't come out until 2005? What was it like to be in such a small, tight-knit crew, kind of living two lives? It was, it was really difficult, Adam, um, because... You're right. As, as heli- helicopter crews are it's a four-man crew, so it's a multi-crew environment. When you go away flying the aircraft, although there is, you know, there's non-commissioned people in the back of the aircraft, and obviously the, 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 the pilots are commissioned officers. So there's a rank gradient anyway. But um, actually, as as a support helicopter crew, you operate the system, the aircraft, um, and therefore you get to know each other very, very well. And to maximise the operation, whilst there is, you know, there's always a captain of the aircraft and the two people sat in the front driving the aircraft are officers and the two people in the back are not officers, um, there is a huge deal of respect between the crew in terms of their various roles around the aircraft. And the respect is ultimately that you operate that aircraft as a whole team um, to deliver the operational effect that you're trying to deliver. Um, So professional things aside, you, you live in very close environments when you're operating um, the aircraft away from home bases. You're often living in quite um, rugged conditions, um, you know, like the desert um, or, or, or deployed locations living in tents. So you get to know each other very, very well. And there, there's only so much small talk that you can go through before you get to the whole, oh, so what have you got planned with the girlfriend at the weekend and all this sort of stuff. Um, and those are the sorts of things, Adam, which then, you know, over a period of time, they do really start to play on your mind. Um, and, you know, you continue to lie. And I was lying, you know, and I dated girls because I was so far in the closet. I was dating girls right up until the time I came out to try and lead and perpetuate this heteronormative lifestyle. Um but I, I had been been lying as well, you know. But I knew that when I went back to those flying operations from the desk job I'd been doing in Bristol, I knew it was going to come um, or, or come to a head at some stage because all of those factors started sort of crowding in on me from a professional Air Force perspective. But I also had sort of family pressures as well because I'm the only son. I have an elder sibling, but it's it's my sister. Now she had produced grandchildren. So that was fine. But of course, the family name stops with me as well. And, you know, going back to my alpha male father and all those sorts of things in the heteronormative house that I'd grown up in, you know, I'd, I'd even had things like, well, the family name stops with you, son, and all that sort of thing said to me. Um, so there was a degree of home pressure as much as anything else, as well as professional pressure on me. Um, and, and all of those things came to a head um, in 1999, um, I was in a very high-pressure job at the time at um, um, 
uh, an RF base in Hampshire. I was still flying on the Schnooks, um, uh, supporting high-end operations. Um, and it all started to just crowd in on me. And effectively, ultimately, I, I, I got to the verge of having a nervous breakdown. Um, and I'd got to the point of, I'd, I'd been living a parallel lifestyle. I'd been dating a girl at the time. Um, but I'd started living a, uh, a dual life in as much as, you know, she'd be around the base. I was dating her. Um, she used to play lots of sports uh, for the Air Force and represent the Air Force uh, at sporting level. Um, and when she was away, I was going into London to, to meet guys. Um, so the, the duplicity of the lifestyle that I was beginning to lead was also, you know, a factor that all of these factors started to conspire and and, and sort of tipped me over the edge, I guess. Um, and to the point that I'd recognised that, I guess, that I was, I was gay, but, you know, I had all of these sort of other pressures still that I was in the Air Force. It was still, I would still lose my job, albeit not with dishonour and all those sorts of things. Um, so um, I, I'd, I'd even got to the point of, you know, planning my own demise um and and can you know considering suicide um as the easiest way out um but i i didn't go that far um clearly but i managed to um get myself sorted with some counseling and i went through six months of counseling um to actually sort of talk through everything um and get it out in the air um, and by the time I'd come through all of that, the legislation had changed anyway and the rules had changed in, in January 2000. Just going to take a moment to, A, thank you for sharing those experiences. You don't have to be that open. There's never an expectation for you to share that much, but it's powerful to hear other people's, not testimonials, but experiences because people can relate to those. And again, thank you for being that open because it helps us actually understand the sh how tough it was. Um, because currently serving in the Army Reserves myself, we're very privileged to be where we are now in, in the service. So thank you. Pride. Okay. It's a celebration. It's why yep. we're here. What does pride mean to you? I think it's hugely important, Adam, to be honest with you. Um, okay, so that there are some political undertones to pride as a as an event but my overarching view of, of it is it is a celebration um and, and you know we are lucky in many respects in the uk that we enjoy as a community the position that we do because society has changed um and it is much more acceptable now clearly than it was you know when pride first started in the 1970s when it was still illegal and, and all those sorts of things um but it is a, is a fantastic celebration of who we are and what we are. And we should be proud of that because it has been a tumultuous journey um, for the community to get to where we are. And there is a lot to um, be thankful for. Um, there's a lot of hard work that's been done in that time. And there's a lot to celebrate as a result of that. And we should be proud of that. Effect. And finally, can you help paint a picture of what it's like to take part in a Pride event surrounded by by your peers because we all have this image of everyone's happy celebration rainbows flying everywhere but help me paint a picture of what it's actually like for for serving personnel to take part it is an absolutely amazing experience um i must admit i i, I wasn't 
necessarily one of those people um, who used to take part. Um, but again, from a leadership perspective, I realised that I needed to be part of it to be a visible role model to, you know, not just the people that were marching with me, um, but to the wider Air Force um, in terms of being vocal and visible as a role model. Um, and to actually participate in Pride, the, the, the support and the reaction that you get from the crowds when you are walking, marching, as we do, obviously, um, through through London is is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's a hugely lifting experience. Um, hugely supportive, clearly, because the crowds, are majority are LGBT, um, and that's why they're there. They're there for, to, to be there with their own community. But there's a large percentage of the crowds that aren't. They're allies. And you get the same amount of support from them as much as anything else. And we have our allies marching with us as well. So not everybody in the military contingents actually identifies as LGBT. There are allies that are marching with us as well. And, you know, the number of allies that have marched with us and come up to me afterwards and said, what an utterly amazing experience. I never realised it would be that good. Amazing. It's rare that people enjoy a parade or a march, isn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> I, 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 as I say, I never thought I would, but I did. And, you know, one of the defining moments for me, we had the, the Royal Air Force Band with us um, in 2019, I think it was. And I never thought I'd see the day, Adam, to be honest with you, that I would be marching at the head of the RAF contingent with the RAF band marching ahead of us. And whilst we stopped in the Haymarket, because as you know, the parade sort of marches for a bit, then it stops and everybody regroups and all that sort of thing. But the RAF band was playing YMCA and everybody was raving to it. So, you know, uh, just just amazing. I wish that was caught on video. I'd love to love to see that <laughs> performance. Maybe this year, who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much. I've learned an awful lot from you. Thank you for being as open, way more open than I would have ever expected in this chat. It's helped me and those listening fully understand what it was like when it was legal and the progress we've come to actually take part in pride parades um is there anything else you would love to add to the conversation for maybe someone who's listening no all i would say is you know just just be yourselves you know the, the culture is is right and that's not to say that everything is right in the in the military right now it's the same as any organization a big organization with lots of people involved in it but i think the conditions and the culture are right that people can be themselves in the workplace and that's exactly what you need to be so you bring your whole authentic self to work uh, and you are able to produce your best in the in the working environment lovely mark thanks for giving up your time thanks very much adam mm-hmm.